Welcome to our discussion segment on the Inquisition. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. John, I loved how you ended the episode. Oh, thank you. It was very, very good. good. I actually, uh, I didn't know that about Hoos. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, and the image you painted at the end of it, it was, it was just very, very awesome. Thank you. I got a little bit of feedback from someone about how they worried that it, it made it sound like Luther was the hero in the, in the story. And it's important to remember that Luther was flawed and human like we all are. He had plenty of demons and a lot of things later in his life went wrong for him and caused him to say and do some pretty awful things. But in that moment, he was exactly who both sides, the reformers and the traditionalists in the Catholic Church, sure. really needed to push for necessary changes. We go out of our way to point that out on the show. I, I am curious, why do you think people feel inclined to say, and I'm not talking about this person, I'm just saying in general, when you talk about someone in history mm. nowadays, it's very common for somebody to say, well, you know, he was also this. Why do people do that? I think partially it's the time that we live in. We have a greater historical awareness probably now than at any time ever because of- You really think so? Well, hold, let me let me finish. <laughs> in terms of access to information, uh, yes. yes. And-, and but it is also because we live in a generation of quick sound bites, thanks to mass media and social media, we take a few little things that we learn on Wikipedia or from other people or from podcasts and things like that, and we don't look at the whole person. We don't look at the good and the bad that they do. Okay. It's interesting, those people who study something, whether it's history or anything at all, they're, they're, they're very rarely absolutists. Except yeah, in math. That's true. Except in math. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it's because you you know you know well, Joe, that- you know that math is is racist and has been colonized by white people, right? <laughs> no, I did not know that. Oh, you should look at there's stuff online, genuinely people who are saying that the idea of two plus two equaling four is a white supremacist notion. Yeah. I, I, if if you have ten minutes and a few brain cells to kill, you ought to check that out. I would rather be reading history. <laughs> <laughs> when people hear the word inquisition. The images of torture chambers and people being rounded up and, and men of the cloth walking around in groups immediately like pops up. Mm -hmm. You in the podcast delineated between two types, I would say, where you said, okay, we can't just group this all under one umbrella or one category. Right. So why do you think people do that? Why do they group everything under the name? Is it linked to what we were just talking about? I think so. Okay. It's also, it's nuance. And a lot of people really have trouble with nuance when it comes to history, when it comes to personalities, when it comes to really, again, anything but math. It is very easy to say, this group of people good, this group of people bad. And sometimes there is a very clear distinction between good and bad people. But a lot of times, especially in situations where culturally, the times in which they lived are so incredibly different from what we are experiencing right now. I think it boils down to an issue of nuance, and it boils down to a lack of understanding of the culture and the times in which people lived. Okay. And that's why we're doing this. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons why we always try and hammer home the need for history, because so much of our time is spent not learning these types of things. It's like burning through time, yeah. which is not a good idea. You addressed this a little bit in the podcast, but thinking about the role of information. Back then, it seems like those who were able to get a copy of God's Word as an example, um, we're able to read, okay, nothing about what I'm seeing here is biblical. So is, would you, how, what role does information play in, in this type of environment? And how, how are there any parallels to that nowadays? I think the, not I think, it's true. The, 
the whole period of the Middle Ages and what happened in the Western and also in the Eastern Church, but it's more pronounced in the Western Church, is a textbook example of why siloing information off and only giving it to certain people is a recipe for social disunity and for, frankly, the abuse of power and a rise of authoritarianism. If only certain people are allowed to have certain bits of information, if only the clergy is allowed to have access to the scriptures, we are all flawed human beings. Power corrupts. All of the cliches are true. And when you give a small group of people literally the power over life and death, having access to God's word and understanding how you get to heaven, even the best-intentioned people will be tempted to misuse that. And it started slowly, and it gathered a pace over several hundred years until we get the point where, during the high and especially in the late Middle Ages, again, as we, as we talked about in the podcast and as you just said, nothing in the actions of not all, but a, a large number of clergymen, nothing that they were doing was biblical. Nothing that they were teaching from the pulpit every Sunday was biblical. And yet, because no one else had access to that information, because it was, we'll use the dreaded word, censored, no one was able to push back and say, hey, hey, this is wrong. It's also why the church was one of the great opponents of Gutenberg and the other inventors who are developing movable type and printing presses, because the church recognized very quickly, and not just the church, governments recognized very quickly, if you can publish whatever information you want, if you can tell people whatever you want, that's real power, and that can be dangerous. And it leads to all the conversations that we're having and have always had in, in human society about misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, and all of the, all the conversations about censorship that continue to this day. They started during the Reformation. Mm. It reminds me of a last season when we did a podcast on Frederick Douglass, when mm -hmm. he received some education from uh, one of the people who had purchased him. The man's wife started to educate him, and then... The, the man who, who paid for him told her to stop mm -hmm. because he did not want slaves learning. And that for Douglas, that he said that was his first reference to freedom. Yeah. That knowledge is freedom. And he started to go around it town. It can be. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. Knowledge applied can, can be freeing. So he would go around and read posters on yeah. the street, anything he could get his hands on to read, so to learn more and read. It's such a parallel. We use, you use the term censorship. Was it censorship or was it willful ignorance by the populace? Because some of them, most of them couldn't read Latin. Was it accidental ignorance? Was it just lack of education? That was a large part of it, okay. yeah. But by the late Middle Ages, you have enough people who are learning to read. Literacy rates begin to climb, largely coming out of the Crusades. And so at that point, yeah, maybe they don't read Latin, but they can read. And so okay. when Luther and when John Wycliffe, a century earlier— and other people are saying, hey, we need to start translating these works, not just the Bible, the writings of the early church fathers and, and secular works and other commentaries and things like that. Again, it's, it's certain people, certain establishment authorities within the church are saying, no, don't do that. Because I have to imagine a lot of people, again, and I want to stress, it is not a majority in the church who are, who are corrupt like this. No. But those who were, some at least understood. They knew what they were saying and what they were doing was unbiblical but it benefited them to such a degree that they no longer cared. Their hearts and their, and their spirits were either so darkened willingly or from apathy for so long that it didn't matter to them. Okay. So in the podcast, when, when you were talking about Ferdinand and Isabella, mm -hmm. thinking about 
the Inquisition? Was it something that was a matter of conviction for them? And so I, I want to use them as an example, but I'm thinking about other individuals in power who other authorized monarchs. this. Yes. Yeah. And also the Pope. I mean, yeah. honestly, were they taking a position from conviction or was it from power? Did it start a conviction and end up in power? How did that historically play out? I think, like we were talking about earlier, it's nuanced. So with Ferdinand and Isabella, Spain is in a unique position because of its geography and the fact that it's been at war almost nonstop for about 700 years. So is it conviction? Yes, partially. The Spanish monarchs historically have been far more zealously Christian and zealously Roman and Catholic than a lot of the other people ruling in other parts of Europe, because for them, they're waging a crusade. The Reconquista is a type of crusade to free the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and Portugal from the Muslim presence. So it is conviction for them, but it's also politically expedient, because you have the Conversos and the Moriscos, these Jews and Muslims in their society, and that was, they were the first targets of the Inquisition, because that was before the Reformation sure. started. And you have these two groups of people that in, this, in the mindset of the Spanish elites, I don't know that we can ever really trust them. One of the great tropes of anti-Semitism is the idea that Jews have mixed loyalties, have dual loyalties, and it's as, as wrong then as it was, or as it is today. In most cases, Jews who live in countries other than, other than Israel are sure. primarily loyal to where they live. I mean, they wouldn't be there if they weren't. And the same was true of Muslims. Most Muslims... From what I've read, most of the Moriscos, they wanted to live in Spain. They didn't want to live in North Africa or, they didn't, or in any other part of the Abbasid Caliphate or the Umayyad Caliphate. I'm trying to remember which one was in charge at that point. They preferred to live in Spain. Did some convert out of you know, a desire to save their life or a desire to kind of be a subversive element? Probably. But you have, I think, dual motivations for establishing the Inquisition. In other parts of Europe, like in France... It's probably more about political. I mean, again, there's always going to be a religious conviction. Otherwise, you don't ask the Pope to step in because at this point, because of papal monarchy, if the Pope steps into your country, that comes with a loss of your, if you're a monarch, a loss sure. of some of your power. Right. So you don't do it unless you have to. And the French monarchs in the, uh, in the 13th century, they had so many heretics, especially with the Cathars in southern France, they didn't have a choice. Yes, it's, it's a religious conviction, but it's also these people are dangerous. Were they actually dangerous? Ugh, there's some debate. But in the minds of the French leaders, this, this is a political problem. As much as it is a religious problem, they have to go. In the Holy Roman Empire and in much of Eastern Europe, it is almost entirely political. Yes, again, there's always going to be a conviction element, but the Holy Roman Emperors, because they are elected and because the princes of the Holy Roman Empire always had more power than the emperor himself, more political power, he uses the church and the Inquisition as a weapon against his political opponents. Right. And that's where you see a lot of the corruption that Conrad von Marburg deals with and, and engages in, where a local prince will say, hey, this person is a heretic, and maybe that person has never even spoken about Christianity, spoken about theology— he happens to say, you know, I think this particular prince is corrupt or whatever it is. He's a political opponent. Marburg says, I don't care. And he brings him to an atuta fe and he tortures and kills that person. So that brings it back to your comment in the podcast about it being an act of the state. Right? Yes. Okay. So you really drove that home two times in the podcast. And it was really helpful for me because, again, perception, the mm -hmm. Inquisition church run, and it was but thinking about how it was used. And, and that's why I was asking about conviction, because 
these royals, the the examples I gave, Ferdinand and Isabella, they were educated. They could to an read. extent, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they, they could yeah. read. There is nothing in the Bible that has anything to do with the Inquisition, with any of the torture, with True. any of any of it. It is complete. But we don't know how much. I actually, I don't know how much biblical education Ferdinand and Isabella yeah. had, or any fair, of these. Fair. I mean, that's important to to recognize. Yeah, I'm just like I'm just trying to understand from a conviction standpoint. Was their trust so much in the Catholic Church? That they, if the Pope said this is biblical, this is God's will. Yes, absolutely. They, they would say, "Okay, I agree with you." Yes. They would not take the time to actually read the Bible. Probably not. Okay. How? Because again, and just just to kind of tease this out, just for for those who are less familiar with the history, at this stage, papal authority, thanks to Unum Sanctum by Boniface VIII, is absolute. Not okay. just over spiritual matters, but over temporal matters. So, if you offend the Pope by challenging him on a doctrinal issue or a theological issue. Not only can he excommunicate you and send you to hell, he can also call a crusade against you. He can send armies into your country. So they are not going... It it takes a brave man or woman to stand up and say, the Pope is wrong. So it was less of a spiritual conversation, for sure. Probably. probably. I I can't say for absolute certainty. I don't know. But I would imagine that their conversations were, the Pope said it, that settles it. How far did his influence go in Europe? I mean, where, where in Europe did he not have influence? Or were, well, I mean, in in Eastern Europe, in areas uh, under Orthodox Christianity, the Pope had had limited, if if really, if any, authority. Once we get into the Reformation, of course, his authority wanes in the Protestant areas. But at the height of the medieval Church's power, his writ was absolute, basically in almost all of Christendom, Western Christendom, because again, the, the the Great Schism is in 1054. So that breaks off the Eastern churches. They're not going to listen to his authority on spiritual matters. But in the West, his, so his the West word is being, law. Being the, West, the West being basically Germany and Austria, West to Spain, Portugal, that area. Okay. Yeah, Western Europe. Okay. So let's talk about torture devices. <laughs> okay. Only because when I think about, and I having read about this, this, this all has a tie-in. The thinking about conviction, the, the thing about what these monsters ended up doing to people, this didn't happen overnight. True. So, and it wasn't based off of a biblical conviction, maybe a papal one, mm-hmm. but biblical, no. And those who even could read the Bible were not reading it. They were hearing what the Pope was saying. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say everybody. I'm just saying like the people right. that we're talking about as part of the podcast. So they were deciding... That, okay, I'm going to do what this man is saying because I believe he's, he's ordained by God. And then they go down the road of, of what they consider doing God's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that the justification for using some of these things? And by some of the things, I mean the rack, the uh, wheel, the, there, there were some things I don't even want to say. Well, and so, quick historical note on that. But most of the popular images of the torture devices used in the Inquisition actually weren't. Most of them were invented during the 18th and 19th century, during the height of anti-clericalism, as a way of saying, oh yeah, this is the kind of stuff that they used, when actually really? it is, yes. So I learned this um, when I was in Germany. Um, I went to a museum in a little town called Rotenburg, which is a preserved medieval town. It's got a, it, it still has its wall around it. The Allies actually avoided destroying it. It's where they filmed, it's the village they filmed uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in. Okay. And it's beautiful gingerbread houses. There's a museum there, and it's, it's a medieval justice museum. And they have all of these uh, these exhibits about actual Inquisition and other secular 
devices, we'll, we'll call them, uh, they were used to compel testimony and to compel recanting of a, uh, of a heretic. And then you go upstairs, and it's all the horrible stuff that, you, that we think about, like the Iron Maiden and thumb screws and all of that stuff. And, and again, stuff that them putting metal in parts of the body where metal was not designed to go. And the, the exhibits are very clear. This was invented in 1834. This was invented in, you know, 1878 by someone who hated the Catholic Church, and he or she said, you know, oh, yeah, this is, this. I've rediscovered a medieval torture device. Most of the torture, the torment that was inflicted was using the three implements that I mentioned, the rack, whipping, and the water cure. The wheel was used periodically, but not very often. Yeah, it's that called was the breaker's wheel. Breaker's wheel. That was more of a um, a civic punishment. I don't. I'm trying to remember if if that was used. It probably was used in the Inquisition, but very sparingly. And again, it was very very common for there to be only light punishments. The atuta fe and the the burning and all of the all of the horrors. Yes, it did happen. But it was nowhere near a majority of the cases. A majority of cases were people coming before priests begging for forgiveness. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And will you give me the churches and, and Christ's uh, forgiveness? And again, how much of that was based on them wanting to save their lives and how much of it was genuine? There's no way for us to know. Sure. But again, the popular image of the Inquisition, as awful as it was, under Torquemada especially, and under the other two, uh, Robert Lebouchre and um, Conrad von Marburg, absolutely horrific. Stuff that belongs in, you know, in books with the Nazis and the communists and, and all of these other horrible periods in human history. But it is not a majority, not even close, when you, when you look at the numbers of people who were, who were examined by the Inquisition. Okay. So, having given all that, I forgot your question, I'm sorry, about, about the use of these devices. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad you told me that. I did not know that. Yeah. It's really an interesting fact. This is propagandized oh, yeah. all, this, this entire time period. I'm hearing that it's important for us not to take things at face value, not to well, take things and like yeah, and go back and actually study it before you reach study a primary sources. Yeah, yes. So uh, I was asking specifically about the, the descent into madness. I'll call it mm -hmm. of when somebody says, "I'm going to burn this person alive." This is acceptable behavior. This is right. God wills it, yeah. which He doesn't <laughs> at all. Yeah. Uh, so, what was the process for that? Like, how how did how did it get that bad? I, is my question. The short answer is I don't know. I mean, there is plenty of psychology around evil, and specifically around those who are just doing as they are told. They're just following orders. You know, we've talked about that book. I believe it's it's uh, Good Men. Yes. It's called yeah about yep. about Polish police officers during World War II. I think a lot of it comes down to them trusting wrongly their superiors, as is often the case in, in acts of genocide and, and war crimes and things like that that we've talked about in this podcast before. A lot of it is them trusting what their church and what their pope is saying is God's will. I mean, when we talked about the Crusades back in, I think it was season three, um, and the destruction of Jerusalem it was the same thing. It was all, it was God wills it, this is the path to heaven, et cetera, et cetera. And in a lot of ways, I think it's ignorance. Doesn't excuse it by any means. But they, yes, they probably knew the scriptures, but I don't know that they ever looked at the Bible and said, okay, this is a guide for how I'm going to live my life. I really struggle to believe that anyone, that any believing Christian can read the Word of God and then go and give the water cure to a young woman. Right. I, 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 unless, unless there is some higher authority that's telling them, Ignore that book. And Ignore what the book says. That's what I was do trying what, to decipher. Do what I tell you. Right. It, it's got to be one or the other. It's got to be, 
I'm going to defer authority to this person who I believe is divinely mm-hmm. ordained, or I'm going to willfully not study God's word and say, okay, I'm going to do this thing that I want to do. I think it's, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's true. It's, I think it's one or the other, but again, it's important for us to remember we're looking back 800 years later. So there could be other explanations that are out there that we don't know. What matters is the evil that they did, no matter the justification, no matter the rationale, it was wrong. And I know, I know, I'm I'm saying for, it's, it's fine to talk about motivations. It's good to talk about motivations, but whatever their motivations, the fact is they committed a moral evil that their God would condemn that humanity ought to condemn. And right. we that's why we're studying and talking about what happened here. Yeah, I'm just trying to nail down the, the signs. What are the steps that somebody would observe in behaviors like that to foretell or be aware, okay, this person's going down a bad path. The verbiage that they're using, the actions I'm seeing, especially actions, actions, yes. actions. Based on their actions, what pattern am I seeing here and how much worse are they going to get if they're not checked? I would argue that the sign is, first and foremost, when someone says, here is what I say about a book, about a law, about a religious text, etc., and then says, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong, and don't go check it for yourself. Again, that comes back to information. I think one of the biggest signs of rising danger, not necessarily rising evil, is when people say, don't read this, don't have access to this kind of information, trust what I'm telling you Mm -hmm. instead of verifying it for yourself. I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm also an open information, pretty much absolutist. You know, all the caveats for national security, okay. I mean, personally, I want to know about the aliens. I want to know about the JFK assassination, all of that stuff too. But I recognize that sometimes in society, we have to, you know, silo certain information. But the more information that people have the more they are able to use their God-given mind to check what their leaders and what potential, frankly, potential villains in a society can say. Or I'm sorry, what they are saying and checking it against what they're doing. So to take a step back, the I'll call it the justice system Mm -hmm. that you talked about to convict someone, did that have any lasting effect in the areas where it was widely used? So after the Inquisition, the process is used, anything, was there any leftover from that that continued on in history? I okay. say justice with quotes, yeah, yeah, yeah. like justice. I mean, you, you got to look at different countries. So almost everything about medieval justice was wiped away by the French Revolution and by Napoleon. His Code Napoleon, his Napoleonic Code, unquestionably his, his most important, lasting achievement wiped away all laws that are based solely on religion. He said, we are going to have laws that are based on reason, based on natural law as he saw it, which was, you know, very different from how Locke and the other, you know, Enlightenment philosophers saw it. So the Inquisition survived in a couple of European countries, most importantly in Spain until 1834. That's post-Napoleon. I will confess, I don't know much about Spanish legal history, so I don't know if any of the precedents set in Inquisition courts were then carried on into Spanish, either secular courts or in other religious activities and things like that. But in the majority of continental Europe, all the Inquisition legal precedents were wiped away by the French Revolution by Napoleon when he imposed the Napoleonic Code, which was then kept in a lot of European countries even after his defeat. Okay. By the way, folks, don't go see the Napoleon movie until Joe and I have seen it. We will let you know if it is worth seeing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Can't wait to see that. Was there any form of the Inquisition in Great Britain? I was sitting here wondering if you were going to ask me. I think 
there was. Because the Pope did not, his, his influence did not extend to Well, it did under Bloody Mary, under Mary I, after Henry VIII and Edward VI, I think it was, we get Queen Mary, who rules for a number of years. She is a devout Catholic, and she brings, I know she brings burning at the stake to England. I believe that was under the Inquisition, but I will be honest and say I'm not sure. But the Elizabethan religious settlement ends that when she dies, when Mary dies and Elizabeth I takes the throne, that's the end of papal authority once the Elizabethan settlement happens in 1551? So she reverted back to the separation that occurred under Henry VIII? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and even though there have been Catholic monarchs since, they ha- there have n- there's never been another attempt, as far as I'm aware, to bring the Inquisition back to to Britain. Did that add to any aggression against Great Britain from countries in Europe? Oh yeah, when Philip II planned the Spanish Armada, there are reports, and I don't know how accurate they are. It was mentioned in that terrible film, Elizabeth: The Golden Age, which we reviewed last Your season. Favorite. Yeah. My favorite, which tends to make me doubt these reports, but I have read accounts that said that in some of the ships were priests who had been given a charge by the Pope to bring the Inquisition to England, to follow after the army when they conquered, as they conquered the country and begin to persecute and prosecute heretics. I will confess, those are reports in secondary sources. I've never read a primary source that says that. But given, again, I don't speak Spanish. Most of the primary sources are available in Sp- uh, only in Spanish. I've not read many translations. I've not delved too deeply into the religious or legal history of Spain, so I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But given that it was in Elizabeth the Golden Age, a movie which none of you should go see, it's probably not true. <laughs> a warning again. Oh, More I hate warnings. that movie so much. That movie's viciously anti-Catholic and, and not something that anyone should, should watch and enjoy. Agreed. You gave some examples in the podcast of individuals who stood against the church, who tried to say this is— Not against the church, against against, corruption in the church, yeah. Yeah, so they they stood against the corruption, and they tried to show why it was wrong, using God's word, sometimes the law, and basic human rights. The examples you gave, in in the moment, these individuals were not successful. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but you gave an example at the end, which again, I got chills from, about a flawed individual who who came afterward, who started to gain some traction mm-hmm. against this corruption. What was the difference between his actions and others that came before him? What, was there a widespread belief or distrust in the church or the state or the corruption linked to both? What was different 100 years later? That's a great question. I think it comes down to the times in which Luther lived and the, and the times in which he spread his reforming and Protestant ideas. Because a lot of what Luther said actually came from Jan Hus. He's, he's supposed to have said, you know, I was a Hussite and didn't realize it. Because huh. so many of his words about church corruption and about the importance of the scripture being in everyday people's hands are things that Huss had said. The difference is he is closer to the centers of power within Christendom. Bohemia is on the fringes of Europe, and so Huss is not going to have the same kind of reach at a time before any kind of mass media that Luther is able to have. Luther is also working within the church. The fact that he is an Augustinian monk and later a priest, that's going to give his objections much more weight than a lot of the earlier reformers who were outside the church looking in. They were still Christians, but they were not members of the clergy. They were either nobles or commoners. 
And then you have the technological revolution of the printing press and the fact that his ideas, his pamphlets, his sermons could be spread much more rapidly, you know, rapidly relative to what was done. It's not just word of mouth or handwritten documents anymore. Yeah, it takes a while to put a, a sermon into a printing press, but once you do, you can run a thousand sure. off relatively quickly. It's the it's technology and the spread of information combined with his position as someone within the church and geographically where he was in relation to Christendom. Okay. It's interesting how often successful reforms happen within, or, or they start from within organizations. It's very rare for powerful organizations, if you study history, to be forced to change from the outside absent a war or some kind of like tremendous violence. Typically, reformers, heroes who are standing up against evil and against villainy from within that same organization, they are able to affect change much, that is much more lasting in a lot of ways and also a lot less violent than if you try to impose change from the outside. Is it fair to say that those individuals who are inside of the corruption, I'll call it, who may have been part of it at the beginning and mm -hmm. start to see it, they're the ones closest to the action and the effects of the actions taking place. Oh, yeah. And so they're more inclined to not only see it, but see the cause and effect. Hopefully. Okay. They, they, they have more of an opportunity to do that. I mean, there is plenty of evil that we've seen throughout history. We're seeing it in our world today, and people either shut their eyes to it or they gleefully participate. I mean, you, you look at images coming out of Ukraine, coming out of uh, Israel and the Gaza Strip, there's no shortage of evil. And there are people standing against it, but it just seems like, you know, it, it, can, it can appear overwhelming. In a lot okay. of ways, when you, when you see when it's blasted all over your Twitter feed or it's being spread on TikTok and in the press, in most societies, that snapshot that you get is propaganda. It's designed to, it's designed to promote a narrative, just like attempts to suppress the truth during the Middle Ages was propaganda, just like these horrible devices that you insert into unfriendly areas of the human body, those were propaganda. Evil is exciting to watch, and it is powerful when it comes to the human psyche. And it's important that as we study history, we learn the lesson that you also need to look for the good in a society, and you need to look for the good within organizations that are corrupt, that are perpetuating acts of evil. And we need to support those men and women who are standing against that evil. If we're outside looking in, give them your support, however that manifests itself. That's how you bring about lasting change and can hopefully reverse a trend of evil in a society. Yeah. One of the things I, I got a hint at in the podcast was the effect of the mob rule, mob, men, oh, mob, yeah. mob mentality. We see that today. We see that. I oh, mean, yeah. people get it's, whipped it's up to frenzy. Like, I could be sitting in my, in my house alone and I will scroll down a, a feed on Twitter and suddenly feel myself getting angry about something because there's some big conversation and then other people who are who agree with me are making comments it's the same thing it's just this like micro example yeah in the face of all that and just being in just having all of this information thrown at you using this as context as an example what are some things that our audience should look for when they're trying to understand is this is this a rising danger is this an evil is it an absolute, you know, just trying to really understand what should I look for to un understand the, the direction of where this is going? Yeah. I think, again, the importance of information and the importance of not accepting a piece of information simply because you agree with or you like or you trust a source. History is 
filled with examples of kindly, good, you know, appearing to be very good-hearted men and women leading people in World War II to gas chambers, in the Inquisition, to the Atutafe and the stake. I'm not saying don't trust people. I'm saying understand that every source of information has a bias. Every single one. Every source of information has an agenda. We here at 15 Minute History, we have an agenda. Now, our agenda is to inform you, and we're very open about that. Right. Our perspective is very clear, and we make that clear. We're not trying Here's to hide the information. it. Yeah. And plenty, and plenty of news sources and plenty of you know, information sources, they do the same thing. I would say the easiest way, the best way to guard yourself against potential rising evil in your own society, in your own community, is to be vigilant. Be sober and be vigilant. And to get as much information from a variety of sources as you can. The internet is a wonderful tool for information. It is also a magnificent tool for deception. You've got to check the information that you're getting. If you see, for example, a letter that is posted online that was published 20-odd years ago, and you read it and you just say, wow, that's really provocative, and, it com- and you base your entire ideology, your entire outlook about a given political or, or military situation solely on that one piece of information, that is dangerous. You have to look at a variety of sources, draw from a variety of sources. Maybe that letter, it turns out, is true. Or maybe there are other sources that would counteract that and refute that. You have to make a decision for yourself. Don't let other sources of information, political, media, pop culture, actors, Taylor Swift, don't let them give you your opinions. Make your own opinions based on the information that you've learned. Yeah. Yeah. And keep listening to good podcasts like this one. That is why we are here. Hey, Joe, we've got some new content that we're bringing to our audience this I said this semester. Boy, I'm in teacher mode. This season. <laughs> I'm in your class, John. Yeah, so we just published one, uh, Pop Quiz, which yes. is really fun. Uh, oh, but, fun for you, at least. You can yeah. watch me struggle. So the Pop Quiz is is going to be a blast. And this is our way of getting you all to interact more with us. Also, please send us your questions. Yep. We'd love to talk As to always. you. As always. I uh, basically asked John a question that he has not heard me ask before. He has no resources or time to research it. So he has to answer with his uh, gigantic historical brain. So what I would love is, you know, I have a ton of things I'm curious about, and I'm sure you all do too. I would love for you to send us questions that you can help me stump John with. So let her rip. Yeah, send them into one five minute history at gmail.com. Try and stump me. I'm, I'm sure some of you can. It'll be fun. And our other segment every other week is going to be called Thursday Thoughts. It's a very, very short form piece of history that I will be doing just to and you some fun facts, uh, things that have happened in the past, a uh, person, event, or place, and uh, really excited for that. Again, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this is because this is kind of a darker season. We're going to be going through some darker periods in history, talking about some very, very uh, evil people, evil actions. And this is our opportunity to, one, lighten the mood, two, interact more with you all, and three, just get you some more content for you to use in your life. Absolutely. So the pop quizzes will go up on the Thursday after every episode, and the Thursday thoughts will go up on the Thursday after every discussion. So it will alternate back and forth between a pop quiz and a Thursday thought. And on January 4th, we're going to publish a big uh, discussion where we answer any and all questions that you guys send us about specifically the pop quizzes and the Thursday thoughts. So send us those questions, we'll compile them, and we'll do one long discussion about all those. We'll continue to answer discussion questions uh, every week here on, on 15 Minute History. We love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, so keep, 
Keep sending us your thoughts. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of the Inquisition. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. Thanks, and see you all next week.